Freak off of here and go down the side. They do. Stock's got it. He's got running room. Stock could dive. Hang it up. It's good. It's good. The Jazz win it. The Jazz win it. I can't believe it. The Jazz win it. Clarkson feeling it on a lob. Oh, my. Oh, you have to love it. Clarkson to Mitchell. A thing of beauty. Rudy gets turned around. The lawn right. Blocked. Oh, my. Where did he come from? Welcome to Home Court Press. This is your host, Brian Priest. You can find me on Twitter at bpriest24. I'm joined today by McCade Pearson. McCade, how you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Uh, sky's still blue. Hey, exactly, right? We can still go outside. The sky's still blue. And in spite of what Chicken Little says, it's not falling just yet. Not yet. <laughs> We're working on it, though. So, uh, McCade, this is going to be the first time we're, we're introducing you to the podcast. But we, you and I have gone back and forth a little bit for probably better part of a month, month and a half now, trying to figure out how to do a podcast. And then the day that we met to really start figuring it out, what happens? Uh, we talked about previewing the Oklahoma City Thunder game, and then that game did not happen. And nothing has happened since. <laughs> Been uh, no. been kind of a roller coaster ride, but I, I mean, in light of that, McCade, we don't need to go into either of our backgrounds a whole ton. But let's just let's start off with I, I think the the human aspect of all of this that's going on in the world with the COVID nineteen pandemic. How are you doing? How how's life for you? How's the family? Is everybody safe? Uh, everybody working or able to provide for themselves? Yep, my wife's good. Uh, my wife's still working, just the two of us. I'm kind of getting sick of the color of my walls, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. That's a good thing that I'm staying in and staying safe. Okay, good. Well, it's good to hear everybody's safe. I'm I'm in a similar boat. I, I'm tired of the inside of my apartment, but at the same time, I can't complain a whole lot because I still get to go to work. I still am doing both jobs right now, and compared to the situation that some people are in my my life is really pretty good everybody's healthy and i'm i'm working we're still getting a paycheck so can't be too bad plus we're back at the back in the podcast game so let's get this done all right (laughs) all right so mccade had this idea what we want to do during this pandemic and just the lack of sports is I want to talk about different jazz-related things for Home Court Press. So McCade's idea today was for each of us to rank, and if I say any of this wrong, McCade, please jump in and hit me over the head with a hammer. We're doing the social distancing. (laughs) Yeah, right. We're doing the social distancing, so you're actually on the phone with me, so you can't hit me right now, but... Later. We we can work it out if we need to. Hopefully. But okay. what what your plan was, was to do the uh, top 10 Jazz individual seasons. So we could only use each player once. Is that right? Yeah. So top 10 players with a specific season, basically. I didn't want 10 Carl Malones on there. Yeah. But I still think it'd be a little more fun to look into individual seasons a little bit than career. So, uh, yep, yeah, spot on. 
Yeah. Okay. So I I thought that was a fun idea. That was something I felt like we could jump on, and I I thought it would lead to enough. I I would guess that we probably have at least two or three of the same players and seasons on here, but it, I think there's going to be enough variety that we'll have some fun conversation with this. Uh, I have a few hot takes up my sleeve as always. Well, I but. But before we get started, I will make very clear, I got numbers and logic to back them up. You can disagree all you want, but I can back them up. I'm not just spitballing. <laughs> I figured that would be the case. I wasn't too worried about that. But there's a couple things here I think might catch some people off guard. Okay, perfect. Well, let's before we jump into the top 10, let me give you a couple of my honorable mentions. In terms of okay. the honorable mention, for me, it really came down to who did I love watching? Like, what... What is nostalgic for me, and maybe there's maybe their their career or any season in particular didn't stack up. A couple surprises, guys that didn't end up with a top ten season, but nostalgically, I I loved Mehmet Okor. He was so much fun to watch with the Jazz the summer that he and Carlos Boozer signed with the Jazz and. They had drafted Darren Williams, I think, the season before, or maybe maybe that season. And you felt like you had this core coming together. Uh, so the 2006-2007 uh, Memento core year, he had uh, averaged just over 17.5 points per game, a little over seven rebounds per game. And those aren't numbers that necessarily jump off the page when you look at them. But, man, was he fun to watch. Coming off a screen, setting that, that pick and roll, and, or the, the pick and pop where he would set that pick up high on the wing and then pop and hit threes. All day. I, this season, he attempted a little over four threes a game, which when when you look at 2006-2007 compared to today's game, four threes a game isn't very much, but that's a lot back then, and it was it was just fun to watch. I enjoyed watching Memo Okor, and then uh, I felt like I had to choose between Al Jefferson and Paul Millsap, and just for sheer aesthetics, I, I went with a Paul Millsap season. They, they both... Where it came down to the 2011-12 years, and I, I went with Millsap one because I was just always kind of on that Paul Millsap bandwagon growing up in Logan. I was a Utah State kid, so I watched Millsap play the, the Aggies in Logan, I think, three different times. The uh, Bulldogs came up from Louisiana Tech. Uh, so this 2011-12 year, I d- just... Liked liked Millsap's work ethic. He averaged a little under eight re a little under nine rebounds per game, two assists, uh, one point eight steals, almost a block, sixteen point six points, and from a mid second round pick, that's not bad. And then the last shout out that I had was Mark Eaton. I had to get a Mark Eaton year in there, and we'll go with the year of my birth, nineteen eighty four eighty five. Did you know Mark Eaton averaged over five and a half blocks a game in eighty four eighty five? How about Crazy. that? Absolutely crazy. I have marking in my list. Um, I'm going to give you my honorable mentions, and I kind of want to ask you how you came up with your list. So I had seven names. I basically just looked at, okay, who's been an all-star, all-NBA player in history, and kind of go from there. Okay. So the four all-stars I have off my list are Chuck Robinson, who played for the New Orleans Jazz, mm-hmm. averaged crazy rebounding numbers. Um, he's only here for about 18 months. We didn't win any games when he was here. Um Mehmet Okur's on my list. Uh, Ricky Green's on my list. He was a one-time All-Star before Stockton came, but Stockton kind of pushed him out. Yeah. And then uh, the fastest if I had to have all. a number 11 right now, I'd put Donovan Mitchell, but I have Donovan Mitchell just barely off my honorable mention. 
Um, so did Donovan do not make any list, or is he in the top ten? I would 10? have him at 11 if we had an 11 spot. Okay. okay. Um, and I think he'll get in the top ten. He's getting there. He's improving, and because I'm a super peak guy, I like one-year peaks, usually two- to three-year peaks. I think Donovan Mitchell will get there, but not quite yet. Yeah, he hasn't um, had that peak at all. Exactly. His rookie year was really good. Second year was kind of interesting, and he's been pretty good this year. But we'll give him another year or two to really solidify and see if he can make a jump in a few areas. And then I had three guys off my list that uh, never made an NBA all-NBA team or all-star team for the Jazz, and that's Paul Millsap, Al Jefferson, and then uh, Jeff Hornacek is also just slightly off my list as someone who never quite hit that peak. He's a solid third option on the finals teams, but I don't know if he ever was top 10 in Jazz history. Okay, awesome. Um, so yeah. How did you come up with your list, though? What was kind of your breakdown? Okay, so give a little bit of background on, on why you and I are doing this pod together. Is I had already started the podcast, but felt like I'm more of a, just a visual perception. What, what am I seeing when I, when I look on the floor? And who do I think are the best players? Who's the most productive? Who is the most helpful in terms of helping their team win games? So I just went to basketball reference. I, I started with this past season and went through, and there I had some, you know, it, we, I'm sure going into this, we both had some names in mind, obviously. Carl Malone's going to be on the list. Obviously, John Stockton's going to be on, on the list. It's just They're a matter of what list. season. So I just went backwards from there and, and looked at the numbers, and it, it's definitely a non-scientific approach to coming up with this but yeah i just went through each season and as i would pull up the players that i had in mind you know say i got back to 2003 the last year that carl malone played with the jazz i think it was now it was two well, the 2002 2003 season i believe but like yeah. the the last year that he played with the jazz i just pulled up his career numbers and compared them did the eye test and figured out what i thought would be their best season individually. So I didn't factor in team success necessarily, even though that that's something that I think just comes with the territory when you're looking at best seasons. Typically, your best players having their best seasons going to lead to more team success more team often success than not. Is the effect, not the cause. Yep, exactly. So that's awesome. that's kind of how I chose my list. How about you? Uh, I went to Basketball Reference, sorted by All-Stars for the Jazz. About my 14 people stopped and thought and looked around and said, okay, am I forgetting anybody? No, I'm not really forgetting anybody outside Hornacek, Jefferson, and Millsap. And then narrowed those 14 down to 10 and so on and so forth. Okay, so do you think it's fair to look at it and base your, your beginning, your start on all-star numbers or No, because all-star all numbers are super fluky, as we've seen with Rudy the last couple of years. Exactly, but, all-star's fluky, so it's and it's only the first half of the year. Well, yeah, the first it's interesting because probably, 50. it'd have to hurry up and count, but I think four out of my 10 seasons, out of my 10 players, their best year was not, they didn't make an all-star team that year. Okay. Like, for example, um, I have Darren Williams somewhere in my top 10. The year I chose for him, he did not, he was not an all-star. Yeah, he was an all-star two years later. Yeah. So, I didn't use the all-star season, but I did use okay, did they make an all-star team just to make sure I had the top players in my vision? And then went from there. Okay, perfect. Well, so, with that being said, do you want to just jump into it? Uh, sure. You want me to start with my number 10? 
Yeah, let's. Who you got tenth? I got 1977 Pete Maravich. Um, I'm not a huge Pete Maravich fan, and so I couldn't quite put him any higher. Was he on your list? Uh, I didn't put Maravich on my list for one specific reason. I probably should have mentioned this, talking about how I put my list together. I didn't play in Utah. I only went with Utah Jazz. Okay, and that's my big thing. Is uh, I, that's why I have him ten for mostly. Is the guy just never won. He has zero career minutes played in the playoffs for the Jazz franchise. Never once made the playoffs. And he played 17 games for the Utah Jazz. And they won two home games when he was here. So if you're a diehard Jazz fan who's been going to games for 40 years, you've been to two games that Pistol Pete was playing in one at here in Salt Lake City. And that's just that those two things really hurt who he is. Um, when I play 2K with the all-time Jazz team, he's my starting shooting guard because he's super fun to play with. But <laughs> when I did the roster simulation the other day, I had to. I ended up buying that pink diamond, Pete Maravich, the '98. He was my starting point awesome. guard. Yeah, we got it. Pete's fun on 2K. Um, little overrated out there. So, but yeah, between him not really playing for the Jazz and him not winning anything, it's really hard for me to have him any higher than that. But he was such a talent. That it was hard for me just to flat out leave him off, but I did really think about it, especially against Donovan, because Donovan has contributed to winning and has played in Utah and has made a bigger impact for the Utah Jazz. So that's where I'm at for ten. Okay. Um, you want to move on to my number nine then, or do you want to go with your ten? Yeah, let's uh, let's go. You go through uh, seven, and then okay. then I'll give you mine. Um, number nine, I have Mark Eaton. I chose 1989, which was his all-star season. Okay, um, okay. His back problems, of course, cut his career a little short. I didn't realize, looking back, how bad of a rebounder he was. He never got the amount of rebounds he probably should have. Um, I think he only averaged double digits once or twice, and he averaged between seven and eight mostly. Um, but his 89 season, he was an all-star. The Jazz were really good that year. It's kind of the first year that they became this title contender, even if it took them six, seven years to get to the finals after that. But I have 1989 Mark Eaton at nine. Um, is there anything else you want to say about Mark? I was just pulling up Mark's numbers right now. The, the thing about Mark Eaton, he was never much of a scorer. Uh, anybody who's ever watched a Mark Eaton jazz game probably knows. <laughs> also, I, w- I don't know if you had a chance. NBA TV on Stockton's birthday last week aired a bunch of different jazz games. Yes. And the first one know. was the 28 assist game against the Spurs. Did you happen to see that? No, I have seen it in the past, though. Oh, I've man. A couple times on NBA TV. I didn't watch it this past week, though. That that type of a game, when you watch Mark Eaton, it's it's amazing that they're still playing the same game today that they were playing <laughs> back then. Because Mark Eaton, he, he couldn't make it up and down the floor for three minutes today in his prime. Yeah. Well, okay, so the '89 season—that's that's interesting. I I had—I really thought about '84. I really did. I he he just missed my list, but the '84 '85 season was his his honorable mention for so, for the Mark Eaton season because, like I said, never uh, much of a scorer. But when you average five point six blocks a game, that is and insane. Eleven point three rebounds. Yeah, eleven point three rebounds that year. Like you said, for being his and size. I'm surprised that he didn't rebound a little bit more, but yeah, Mark Eaton. Mark Eaton was interesting. You know, one of my first 
jazz basketball memories. I was watching a jazz game. Couldn't tell you what year it was. Well, obviously, Hot Rod and Ron Boone were on the call, and Mark Eaton was shooting free throws. And Eaton's first free throw bounced around, bounced up high, and it looked so weird that Hot Rod actually called it as a missed free throw, and then it bounced around and fell. And for whatever reason, I I remember that one specific free throw attempt from Mark Eaton just because Hot Rod was like, and Eaton misses the first. Oh wait, no, that uh, that's gonna fall. And so it was just interesting, I, and I think speaks to Mark Eaton's shooting touch. Absolutely, Ken. Um, number eight, I got two thousand seven, which side note is probably my favorite jazz team of all time. I was ten years old. We had season tickets, so I went to probably 45 games that year, including every playoff game. Crazy Western Conference Finals run. I'm obsessed with the 07 team. But I went with 2007 Carlos Boozer as my number eight. Did you have Boozer on your list? 2007 Carlos Boozer, huh? I know I had Boozer on my list. It was the 2006-2007 the season. So I'm okay. assuming so, when you say the 2007 or 89 season, you're talking the second half of the year? Work. Yep, I okay. talked to him when the playoffs were. So, yeah, so, I did have that Boozer season. I had him ninth on my list. Um, Average 21-12-3. I think he was a little underrated of a passer. He's still the most recent Jazz man to have a triple-double. Um, had one in our very last game in Seattle back in 2008. With mm-hmm. All respect to Ricky Rubio and his playoff one. NBA Council regular season stuff only. Yeah. Um. I think Boozer gets a little bit of unnecessary hate from Jazz fans, though, because I don't think he was quite as bad defensively as we think. The Jazz had a couple top 10 defenses in that 07 to 10 range. But looking back, and maybe this is just 10-year-old me thinking, but I felt like it was everybody, we compared Darren Williams and Carlos Boozer to Stockton Malone way too often, (laughs) and that wasn't fair to them. 100% true. Like, we're like, okay, point guard, scoring power forward, like, this is going to work, 2010, 10 assists, like, this is great. And, of course, it just they did not end up being Stockton Malone 2.0. And to be completely fair, nobody is ever going to be Stockton Malone 2.0 for the Jazz organization or for the NBA as a whole. And so I think that's rough on the Darren Williams and Carlos Spencer front because we kind of gave them unfair expectations, especially after their first time in the playoffs they got to the Western Conference Finals, which – even heighten the bar, and I think we could look back at that team a little nicer, um, considering they were just four or five years after what are probably the best two players in Jazz history. And then my number seven was All-Star 2017, Gordon Hayward. Um, I don't have much to say there. He was super solid. He left. That's all I got. Okay, so so the All-Star Gordon Hayward, the, the yeah. season after he... We, as the story goes, he went to the front office and said, let's tear it down and start over. Basically. I don't know if you've heard that story. Uh, I was on my mission, so I've heard most things. I've not heard that one. Basically, he after the after the uh, 2015-16 season, he went to the front office and said, I, I don't know what it's, what it's going to take, what we have to do. Um, maybe the front office probably is, is the wrong way to tell the story. He went to the training staff and said, I, I don't know what we're going to need to do, but let's start over from ground zero, fix the shot, let's fix the game, let's fix the body, and make me the best player that I can be, whatever it's going to take. Yeah. And the next year he made the All-Star team. 
It was awesome. That 15, 16 year before was rough. We were going to make the playoffs. Then we lost a few key games that kept us out. Um, do you have Hayward on your list? Um, I do have Hayward on my list. I also I had that 16, 17 season. So, yeah, yeah, that's so, my yeah, 10 through 7 there. is Pete, Mark, Boozer, and Hayward at 7. Who are your 10 through going down to 7? Okay, so Boozer I had 9. That uh, okay. 06-07 Boozer season. I had the um, Hayward season. Let's see, so that Hayward season I also had 7th. So okay. we, we matched up on that. The one other thing I wanted to say about Carlos Boozer, besides the fact that he was a world-class screamer, it, there, there was, there's never been, nor will there ever be somebody in the league that screams like Carlos Boozer does on even, even seemingly insignificant plays. <laughs> um, I was playing 2K a couple days ago, close game, you know, intense, and uh, I hit an and one down the stretch to take the lead, and I yelled and one really, really loud, and my wife got mad at me. So <laughs> I definitely blame Boozer for part of that inner passion in me. Fair enough. <laughs> I like that. I can appreciate that enthusiasm. The The other thing about Boozer that season and for the majority of his Jazz career, his effective field goal percentage that year was 56.1%. It's just amazing for a guy that, yeah, he didn't have great range. He, he wasn't afraid to get out to 16, 18 feet at times. But the guy could finish around the basket. I think he just... You talked about the bad rap that he gets with Jazz fans a lot, and Darren Williams falls into this a little bit as well. But I think Boozer just, he was soft when it came to the playoffs, especially against the Lakers. When Boozer went up against taller players, he really seemed to shrink from the limelight. And that's, yep. for me, that's why I don't like Carlos Boozer. But I did have that season ninth on my list. Tim Duncan and then three straight years of the Tim I don't want to say Twin Towers because they have Lamar Odom as well, but uh, same idea. I look back, and this is kind of a side tangent, but taking Costa Cufus one pick before Serge Ibaka will forever be one of my <laughs> what-the-heck-just-happened <laughs> moments. Because if we get Serge Ibaka to be our fourth pick there, I think there's a chance we could have edged one of those series out. What about Raul Lopez instead of Tony Parker? <laughs> I mean, come on. Which, there's we could do a whole podcast on what the heck did the Jazz do here in the draft. Coulda, shoulda, wouldas. You know what we should do is a podcast easy. comparing the Jazz first round picks, first round pick foibles, and their second round pick gems. That would be fun. Because <laughs> there that seems like be there's fun. been a lot more success in the second round than there has in the first. Absolutely. So who else did you have on the bottom half of your top ten? Okay, so I had two that were different from you. I had uh, Jeff Hornacek's 94-95 season. His yeah, first, full, first full season with the Jazz. Um, and this this season, this 94-95 year, to me is really the missed season that where the Jazz should have gotten their, their championship. Jordan was retired. The, the Jazz ha- had a great regular season and then got bounced in the first round by the Rockets in five games, and it was... Awful, but looking at uh, at Hornacek in, in this one, that, the numbers that really stand out to me first for a guard that re- rarely goes to the basket, especially at this point in his career, he shot fifty six percent effective field goal percentage, which is just incredible. 
Uh, he also, I think defensively, he was underrated. He wasn't necessarily the most athletic player in league history, but averaged over a steal and a half per game this year to go with 16 and a half points. And as your third w- option going 16 and a half points, shooting 56% from the field, that's that's pretty awesome. Uh, and I just, I really liked this Jeff Hornacek season. And as a jazz fan, remembering that, because I, a few years older than you are, it, it was just, is the the kind of year you're looking at this guy going, damn, he's he's really good. Where'd they find this cat? And it was fun to watch. I uh, I knew, but I was reminded looking through Hornacek stuff that uh, he made an All Star team in Phoenix. Yeah, um, in the '92 season, and I, I knew that, but I'd forgotten that. Oh, he was he was really good. He was before he came to Utah. And his his knee issues. You remember he had that arthritic degenerative knee condition where he didn't have uh, the like he he had knee issues when he came to the Jazz before those knee issues in Phoenix and at Iowa State as well in college. He was awesome. He was really really good. And the the knee issues zapped him of a lot of his athleticism. And then uh, who was your fourth there at the bottom? Okay, so let's see. I had Hornacek, then Boozer, then I had the 2009-10 Darren Williams. I I had to put a Darren Williams season on here. Darren was awesome. I I loved his career with the Jazz, and I I think he's acknowledged it as much as anyone else. He regrets what happened with Jerry Sloan and and wishes he had stayed in Utah and, and been coachable. But for this season, he... I mean, he was just awesome. It, this is so 2009-10. Still not the three-point explosion in the league, but he he shot over three and a half threes per game, making a little over one and 37 percent, which was a, the career high for him. I believe it was his career high. He also ended up scoring this year. Scored 18.7 points per game. Just just a great average. You know, the the way he played, I I love Darren because he. He wasn't your typical distributor, pass-first type of a point guard, but he was always looking to pass. The only time I faulted Darren for not passing the ball enough was in late-game situations. I felt like you knew he was always going to over-dribble and shoot the ball or or give a guy a bad opportunity to score. But, yeah, it, just under 19 points per game, 10.5 assists and a little over a steal per game in the 2009-10 year for Darren Williams. And I, you know, I just felt like Darren had to be on the list. Did you happen to have either Darren or um, you, we agreed on the the Hayward? So yeah, so I left Hornacek off, but I had Darren, and I had Darren pretty high. I have Darren at four. Okay, was it that same um, season or a different year? No, I chose 2008 Darren Williams. Ah. So he wasn't an All Star that year. He played all 82 games. That that 2008 year was the year that Memo made the All Star team instead, right? Uh, Memo made it in 07 as an injury replacement to Boozer, I believe. So 08 was a weird year. We're coming off the Western Conference Championship, and things just didn't work right at the beginning of the year. We traded for Corver in December. Um, Corver helped the offense a ton. Uh, I did some research on lineups on cleaning the glass, and a Darren Williams, Cal Corver, Karolinko, Boozer, Millsap, Okur, two of those three bigs lineups. Uh-huh. It was like a plus 20 per 100 possessions. They were had an offensive rating of 122, which by comparison, the Mavericks 
have a 115 this year, which is the best all time if you just go by pure numbers. Um, wow. How many minutes and, did that lineup play together? Oh, they played, uh, I want to say about 700 possessions. So probably 350 minutes. So not a ton. But, but a decent sample I, size. I mean, a good chunk that you could sit there and say, why aren't we doing this more? Like, that was six all-stars we had. Corver and Millsap weren't there yet. Um, Karolinko was way past that. Williams was kind of getting there. And then Boozer and O'Kerr were there. So it was weird because they were all in different time frames. But those six, just having five of them on the floor was incredible. Um, I love Corver. I think we might have misutilized him a little bit the first time around, which is not a big deal because literally everybody misutilized everyone before the three-point era. Yeah. Um, so we can't judge too hard on that. But Darren went 18.8, 10.5 on 80-50-40 shooting, um, which is just crazy. He knocks down a few more free throws and could have flirted with a 90-50-40. at the 62 shooting percentage. The Jazz won 54 games, um, the most of that mini era right there. And so, and I believe he was all NBA that year, um, a lot like Gobert does, where he misses the all-star game. And then at the end of the season, they go, hmm, maybe we should have had him. Yep, he was all NBA second team that year after missing the all-star game. So that's why I have Darryl Williams as four, 2008. And again, that I like peaks. And Darren's two, three-year peak there was amazing. He was once again, a worse version of John Stockton. There, there, um, was, there was probably a four-year period where I contended that it seemed like Chris Paul always missed the game when they would play the Jazz, whether it was in New Orleans or whether they were coming to Salt Lake. And I always contended that Chris Paul was ducking Darren Williams because I thought Darren, yeah. Darren was better than Chris Paul for about three to four years there. And then when, I, he, when he went to New Jersey is when things really fell off. I'm in a group chat on Twitter with 30 fans from around the league, and uh, we were just talking about Darren Williams and Chris Paul, and I said, prime Darren Williams is better than Chris Paul. But prime Darren Williams only lasted about 18 months, but prime Chris Paul lasted five, six, seven years. <laughs> yeah. And so Chris Paul will go down better. But Darren's peak there for about 18 months, probably the back half of that 08 season through that 2010 season, that probably closer to 30 months was really damn good. So, yeah. Uh, a lot of fun to watch. That was awesome. So I had him at four. Okay. Who you got sixth? Um, Adrian Dantley. Okay. Uh, I, I had a Dantley season. season. Which one? 84. Okay. Um, so that would have been Stockton's rookie year, I believe. Yeah, it would have. I'm a pretty big Dantley hater overall. What are your thoughts on him? So... Because I'm an eye test kind of a guy, I haven't had a lot of time to go back and, and look at jazz stuff, but I'm also someone who I just love the history of the game. So listening to other uh, reading writers, Bill Simmons is a guy I've read a lot, listening yep. to his various history of basketball stuff. Um, in terms of, of the jazz, and, and I think Frank Layden said this recently, I there were there was a period with the Jazz where Adrian Dantley, Carl Malone, John Stockton, they really had a nucleus there. And if if Layden had been able to get Adrian Dantley and Carl Malone to put their egos aside and work together, that the team had a lot of talent and a, and a lot of ability. Overall, Adrian Dantley's a Hall of Famer. I mean, he's a great scorer. And the only question I have on Adrian Dantley it was his uh, work as a teammate. 
And that's my biggest thing is I've read some things. Um, the Bad Boys documentary that ESPN has part of their 30 for 30 collection. Uh-huh. Uh, talked a lot about him. And so first, Adrian Danley, six-time All-Star, two-time scoring champ, two-time All-NBA second team. Um, all his All-Star appearances with the Jazz. Um, he was a great individual talent. The thing that caught me off guard, I noticed this about six months ago, and I was looking into him a little bit, is so there's 23 teams in the NBA when he is part of the Jazz. And this is where they finished offensively out of those 23 teams. 15, 18, 13, 20, 9, 21, 20. I just don't get how somebody averaging 30 points per game on crazy, crazy true shooting percentage, like 62, 63, 64s. Like, he never missed. He's averaging 30 points a game. That's a dream come true. How are his team's offenses always so bad, especially when you have Stockton Malone, young Stockton Malone, but Stockton Malone in those later years. And I was doing some research, and I heard some rumors that when the shot clock hit three or four seconds, he passed the ball 100% of the time. Like, I'm not playing around. I don't want to take this shot. I don't want to take a last-second shot. Mm-hmm. And so it really boosted some of his field goal percentage numbers not taking those shots. Um, and so I just can't get over that. Is how is the offense so bad with such a great offensive player? I, I think you kind of hit it on the head there. He'd, I feel like his reputation precedes him. He's just a ball stopper. So it was hard to have a good yeah. offense when your best player isn't a good passer and isn't a, a willing ball mover. And uh, once he got out of the way, Stockton Malone exploded to another level and the rest is history. And so I was looking through some stuff. I know we're keeping this mostly jazz, but um, when he was on the Pistons, he was their leading scorer, uh, only 20 points a game compared to his 30 with the Jazz. But he was the leading scorer on a team that lost in the NBA Finals in seven games. The very start of the bad boys. And then they traded him away and gave up a first-round pick to get Mark Aguirre, who's uh-huh. probably a little worse than him, and then they won back-to-back titles. Yeah, I think... And I can't tell if that's coincidence or if that's saying something, that they gave up a first-round pick to get a worse player and it benefited the team. It seems like a, a lot of the pundits that I've listened to talking about that Dantley for Aguirre trade, it wasn't a talent type of, of trade. It was all about fit with that team. And Adrian Dantley just, again, it, it was the ego. And so you move him for a guy that maybe isn't quite as talented, but fits in better with your team's scheme. And you saw the results, two, two titles right there. And that's probably always going to be the legacy of an Adrian Dantley. And so that's why I have it six. And it's also weird because his jersey's retired by the Jazz, but it took so long. I mean, I was at the game that they retired his jersey at, and he played his last game for the Jazz a decade before I was born. And so there's obviously was some bad blood there that took some time to heal that we've mentioned a little bit. Mm-hmm. Who do yep. you have at six then? So my sixth, I had Donovan. I had his 18-19 season, so his second okay. year in the league. Um, I just... Felt like what what Donovan did coming in and and really taking over. If I had to be a hundred percent honest, I would. Can I throw this back through the Oklahoma City playoff series the year before? Sure. So sure. I, Donovan, Oklahoma City first round through the next year, his second season in the league. He was he was awesome. He he was so much fun to watch. He averaged 
almost 24 points a game, one and a half steals. He had four assists and four rebounds. Not necessarily eye-popping numbers, but the kind of play where you're you're really watching him going, they've got something here. Like they they really have a talent and he just bumps those numbers up a little bit, unfortunately. Haven't seen the free throw bump that I was hoping for this season. His numbers are largely pretty similar this year. But, yeah, I, I just felt like middle of the pack at, at number six, that 18-19 uh, year for Donovan is, is probably a pretty fair spot for him. Okay. Yep. Uh, that 6-11 to 11 is kind of one grouping to me that – Donovan can very easily could go from 11 to 6 to even higher pretty quickly. That yeah. It's a pretty tight group there. And we've definitely seen the flashes of him being that player we all want him to be. And uh, it's quite sad we're not getting to see that tonight in Denver. Oh, don't. Um, why you got to bring that up? It's still too we're, soon. We're supposed to have five games left right now. This is the start of the playoffs with five games to go, basically. So oh, It's terrible. Um, but yeah, Donovan gets a line more. He's going to jump up that list really, really fast. Yep. All right. Who you got fifth? Uh, I got 2004 Andre Kirilenko. 2004 Andre Kirilenko. I also had that Kirilenko season. I had it I had it fifth as well. Okay. So sweet. we're on the same page. Um, Vegas over-under was 20. Five and a half games, and that team won 42. Oh, they were supposed to be awful. Cause, let's see. How old, yeah. Raul Lopez was supposed to be your starting point guard. Jaron Collins was your starting center. Um, Matt Harpering was on that team and like leaned on for his scoring. Harper, Harpering was 16 points a game. Like, yeah. Just leading scorer. Wasn't, wasn't that the Milt Palacio team? Um, I don't know. Not I'm going to look it up. You you go ahead and talk about that Andre Kirilenko um, year. 16.5 points, 8 rebounds, 3 assists, and then 4.7 steals and blocks, which in the modern times is about as high as you're going to find. He was 2.8 blocks, 1.9 steals specifically. Um, the thing people don't talk about with Kirilenko is his free throw weight was insane. It was like Dwayne Wade levels, Giannis levels, James Harden levels. He got to the line a ton uh this season he got to the line 500 times to 930 shots so very comfortably over a 0.500 free throw rate which just boosts your efficiency like crazy he made his teammates better offensively he made his teammates better defensively i don't know if there's a better blue guy than andre Kirilenko. andre Kirilenko would probably be in my top five to ten role players of all time with Draymond Green, Kyle Korver, those kind of guys. Um, Dennis Rodman, where it's like, you're not going to get a guy who's going to carry you to the playoffs or a championship, but if you just need a really, 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 really good glue guy who can do everything, he's right up there with everybody. No, that's that's it. That, I think, summarizes Andre Kirilenko to a T. I, I would never pick him to build a team around, but if I've got, what, three guys that I, I feel good about, Karolenko could easily be my third or fourth pick if I'm building a squad because he's just going to make smart basketball plays. He's not out there trying to score 30 points in game. He just can guard all five positions. Yeah, he, he's going to guard all five positions. The only reason he shot threes, I never felt like he wanted to even shoot a three. He just did it because he had to. 
It's like I'm well, open. I what, guess I have to. That's what I noticed with uh, looking through some of his numbers. Is his three point attempts were really high in that 2004 year. His second, he he cracked two one time, and it was 2.6 in 2004 yep. attempts per game. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, he's the guy. He was jacking up threes at almost three a game, and he shot it decently well. 34% that year is not awful. Yeah. And then when they didn't need him, he was shooting 1.1 a game in 2009, 1.1 a game in 2007, and shooting him at 21%. Is that he never did commit to the three, and I wonder if he would in today's game. I just oh I never I, in today's game would be crazy. I felt like he he's just one of those guys. His arms are too long, and I don't know. I I can't say that his arms are too long. I mean, a guy like Kevin Durant can shoot the hell out of the ball, but he just I don't think Andre Kirilenko was ever going to have a good reliable jump shot. But the reason why I picked this season and I had I had this this season fifth on my list was. I mean, you, you've kind of talked about the all-around aspect of his play and just that he's going to do everything right. This guy averaged at, what, six foot nine, and I don't know what he was listed at, but if he was 200 pounds, I'd be surprised. So just a, a wisp of a man, but he averaged eight rebounds, three steals, two assist, or three assists, two steals, and three blocks per game this year to go along with 16 and a half points per game. And just that kind of all-around production, uh, the that stat, the five by five, was created for him because he's the only guy to ever get those numbers. Like, it, I don't think Jazz fans realized how good Andre Kirilenko really was for a stretch if there. It, and again, man, we were mean in the late two thousands. If it wasn't for that contract and some back injuries, uh huh. I think again that two thousand seven, two thousand ten era gets a little bump. Yep. There was so much that went so right and so much that went so wrong in that era that just makes it super complex and super fun to look into. But yeah, by 2004, Andre Karolinko. Okay, now that was fifth, right? Yep, he was fifth. And then I had Darren Williams fourth. Okay, so let me give my fourth, and then we'll take a break, and then when we come back after the break, we'll finish it up with each of our top threes. So okay. my my fourth, I had Rudy Gobert. His 18-19 season as well, the same year as Donovan. Um, I mean, you look at his field goal percentage that year, slipped a tiny bit the the last couple games of the season. But going into the last couple weeks, he was in contention to have the highest field goal percentage in NBA history. And say what you want about Rudy Gobert not being an offensive player, but if you're that good around the rim. Like 20 minutes ago. (laughs) He's so good. Mark Eaton couldn't average 10 points a game, and Rudy's averaging 16. Yep. So, not quite that bad. Uh, remind me, sorry, I think I misheard you. What year did you choose? Uh, it was 18-19 for Rudy. 18-19, so last year? Okay. So, yep. Donovan and Rudy from last year? Yep. Okay. Um, that is not the year for Rudy Gobert I chose, but uh, can we talk about Rudy a little bit later? Yeah, yeah, we could talk about Absolutely. Rudy later. Yeah, I'm sure okay. you have more I to say we'll than I do. A, pretty significant conversation when I bring him up. Yeah, no, I I like it. So let's go ahead and take a quick break. And then when we come back with Home Court Press, we will finish with the top 10 Utah Jazz individual seasons with myself, Brian Priest, and McCade Pearson. 
Thanks for choosing Home Court Press. We're experiencing a difficult time as a nation, and we need everybody's help to get back to normal as soon as possible. With the COVID-19 pandemic we're currently experiencing, please follow all social distancing recommendations made by the CDC and World Health Organization. That means stay six feet from others at all times, no gatherings with more than 10 people, and avoid crowded places or mass gatherings. Remember, if it's not an emergency, it can probably wait. So just stay home and help us get out of this as a country as quickly as possible. In the meantime, those of us at Home Court Press will do our best to keep Utah Jazz content flowing. Welcome back to Home Court Press. This is your host, Brian Priest, joined by McCade Pearson, and we are talking about the Utah Jazz and going through the 10 best individual player seasons uh, and so far, let's just recap our top 10. So I've got in 10th, Jeff Hornacek in 94-95, Carlos Boozer in 2006-2007, Darren Williams is my 8th best jazz year in 2009-2010. I've got Gordon Hayward recently, before he stabbed jazz fans in the back, as a lot of people seem to think he did. I got no problem with what Gordon did, but that's another topic for another day. So that's the uh, 2016-17 season. Uh, Donovan Mitchell, 18-19. Andre Kirilenko, 2003-2004. And then just outside of my top three, I had Rudy Gobert from 18 and 19 as well. What was your uh, three uh, through 10, McCade? Uh, 10, Pistol Pete, 1977. These are back half of the years. Uh, Mark Eaton, 9, 89. Boozer at 8, no 7. Hayward at 7 and 17. Adrian Dantley, who you haven't mentioned yet, at 6 and 84. I agree with you at AK04 at number 5. And then Darren Williams was at 4 in 2008. That's probably our biggest discrepancy so far, I think, is that Darren Williams, because I had Williams at 7th and you had him at 4th. At fourth. Fourth. And okay. then Adrian Dantley, I had at 6th and you haven't mentioned yet. So either you're a hater or a lover. Well, I, we were just talking about it on break, and we both agree at number three. So, John Stockton, 89.90. Tell us about that one. Um, I have 89.90 as well. Um, I also almost had Carl Malone, who we'll get to later, 89.90. That year was quite fun. That is the Carl Malone year I have. The thing with Stockton is, what is his prime? Is it a week in the 1990 season? Is it 20 years? That his prime was so long. I'm going to go with January of 1987 through June exactly. of 1998. Exactly. Like <laughs> his prime was so long that his peak was never quite at the level of some other guys that you and I have. Um, I personally believe that John Stockton is the best player of all time who was never the best player on his NBA team. He was covered by Dantley's rookie year and then basically Carmel in the rest of his career. And it's hard to evaluate a player when he's the second best player on his team for literally his whole career. Um, okay, well, hold on. Let me let me ask you this really quick, McCade, before you go on. Yeah. I, I think this is something that a lot of Jazz fans have ha- had this conversation, especially those over 30 that remember watching Carl Malone and John Stockton. Was Carl Malone better than John Stockton? Because I, if you were asking me, I think John Stockton was the better player, even if Carl had the flashier numbers. And that's fair. So people are going to think, 
oh, maybe they don't like Stockton if they have him at three, not two. On an all-time NBA level, I have Stockton a lot higher than most. Um, I have a personal stat I've found that I love. So we often talk about 90-50-40 shooting. So the stat I keep an eye on is three-point percentage, free throw rate, and assist rate. So how many threes you make, field goal attempts, sorry, free throw attempts over field goal attempts, and then what percentage of your teammates made baskets are you assisting on? And John Stockton is the only player to ever do 40-40-40. And he did it four times to where he was shooting 40% from three, getting to the line basically one free throw to every two shots he was taking, and then assisting on basically half of his team's baskets, if not more sometimes. We have never seen that kind of efficiency in someone who makes their teammates that much better, which makes him really hard to evaluate because it's a chicken and egg scenario with Carmelone that we've all been bouncing back and forth between for 40 years now, 35 yeah. years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, uh, I think Carl Malone is probably probably a Hall of Famer anyway. Like just his work ethic, he, he wasn't going to be beaten. So no matter where he ends up, he's going to be a great player. But I think Stockton's ability to get him the ball in the most advantageous position to be successful over and over and over and over again made Carl Malone a significantly better player numbers-wise than he would have been without John Stockton, whereas Stockton's going to have similar numbers without Malone either way. I think, I wonder, I'd love to get into Stockton's brain today because I wonder if he regrets not shooting as much. Um, Steve Nash just did a podcast a couple weeks ago with Bill Simmons, and they sit down they watch a game together. So they watched the... 2007 Sun Spurs game where Steve Nash got body checked into the scores table. Yeah, fun Steve game. Nash was like, why was I not shooting 20 times a game? I was a 40% three-point shooter. I was this, I was that. Why was I not shooting 20 times a game and adding 30 points? And I wonder if Stockton does the same, where he looks back and goes, why was I only averaging 14 points a game and only shooting 10 times a game when I was shooting so well? And it would be interesting to see if Stockton had a different mindset with today's modern game, what kind of player he would be. It really would be interesting. And I, I don't know with, with Stockton, I I wonder if he would play any different at all. I think he shot when he was open and what his, his main goal was to create an assist. And I, I think that's the big difference between John Stockton and a lot of guys, even some of the best passers you see today, is there are not a lot of players that are capable of there there are a lot of people who are capable of creating their own shot there are not a lot of people who are capable of creating a shot for someone else and Stockton was able to get defenders on his hip he was able to create space uh just with the change of speed and his positioning on the floor he was able to get shots for guys that we we talked about the uh, Spurs game that they had on NBA TV last week where he ended up with 28 assists. And that's an extreme version, but that really was who John Stockton is. That was just he created passing lanes that not only could other people not make those passes, other people can't even create the opportunity for those passes. He was special. And those are the kind of players that lead to winning. The ones that make their teammates better and raise floors and ceilings are the players that do the little things that create for their teammates, both offensively and defensively. It's what made Karolinko so good. 
in 04, so it made Stockton so good. So it made Darren Williams so good. Pretty much everyone in my top five makes their teammates around him better, and that's probably why I have Dantley sixth. It's because he did not make his teammates better. I think that makes a lot of sense. Do you have anything else to say on John Stockton? I, I mean, we could go on for about John Stockton for as many hours as you have. We could so. do a full podcast on Stockton pretty easily, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm more than happy to talk about John Stockton and his his greatness. Uh, the, the first game winner I ever saw in person was John Stockton hitting a game winner against the Heat. It was January 8th, 1996. And I had gotten tickets to this game through... I, you probably don't remember this because I, I don't think you would be I old enough. This game. But the uh, the home court press magazine the Jazz had for a little while, or not yeah. home court press, just home court magazine. I had a subscription to that, and I got two tickets to that game through through my Jazz magazine subscription, and that was the the game I went to was Jazz Heat 1996. So Tim Hardaway, Ronnie Cicely, uh the Jazz were Stockton, Malone. Jeff Hornacek, you know, this was right in the heyday. It was a lot of fun. I love going back and watching Stockton games. Super fun to watch. Um, as I said, I have him a lot higher on all-time list than most people do because of what we just talked about. Um, so who's your number two then? So number two is the guy I haven't talked about. I've got Adrian Dantley, except instead of the 84 season that you chose, I had the 80-81 year. Um Main reason for that was really with Adrian Dantley. It just came down to scoring, and this was his best scoring average with the Jazz. Average just barely under 31 points a game. Um, shot a lot of free throws, almost 10 free throws a game, making eight, and a, a good field goal percentage, 56% from the field on the year. So I just, you know, if I'm looking just raw numbers, um, this. This, I feel like, is Adrian Dantley's best season with the Jazz. But I also really like the context that you put in there in terms of, yeah, the numbers were good, but he never made his his teammates better, so that's why you had him sixth. And I Honestly, I kind of wish I had had that idea, too. I'm jealous. Way to go, McCade. Stealing my thunder. So I win, I convinced you of something? Yeah, you did. You really swung <laughs> me on that one. No, I, I've looked into Dantley a lot, and I just... I can't figure it out because as someone who's so obsessed with true shooting percentage, because that's 80% of the game, that's just how many times you put the ball in the basket, how the offense is not better. So I'll continue to research into Adrian Danley for the next 30 years, and I still won't come to a solid conclusion on how that happens. But uh, I do think the 80-81 season is interesting. The Jazz are in a pivotal time right there. There's their second season in Utah, right? Uh, Um, Second or third year. Pistol Pete was gone. and 78, 79, kind of 79. It was weird. their third year. Yeah, it was that weird beginnings of Utah before Stockton Malone got here. Larry Miller didn't own the team yet. I don't I don't even think he was in the ownership group at the time. It was it was definitely a tenuous situation for the Jazz. Oh. And that we will forever be thankful for, that Adrian Dantley did his part in keeping the Jazz in Utah. Yeah, because without Adrian Dantley, the, the Jazz aren't here. Okay, so um, so number two, who do you have? I have 2017 Rudy Gobert. 2017, so the year before yes. the Rudy that I chose. Yes, and so... Is that the first All-Star snub year? Yeah, so this year he misses the All-Star team. Uh, Hayward makes it. Rudy doesn't. They get to the end of the season. 
all NBA voting, and Rudy Gobert finishes less than one first place vote away from being all NBA first team. The first place vote is worth five points, and Davis edged him out for the last spot on the first team, 343 to 339. Oh. I think he got 43 out of the 100 first place votes. And so, literally less than a first place vote. Um, that season, he also goes 1,000 points, 1,000 rebounds, 200 blocks. And uh, I'm going to read you the list of players who've gone 1,000, 1,000, 175 twice in their career. Rudy last year, which is the year you chose, right, was yeah. 1,000, 1,187. The blocks are weird because they're so down right now in the NBA because nobody's shooting at the rim. Yeah. So they're kind of shaky. So I put 1,000, 1,075 into basketball reference, and these are the guys who've done it twice. David Robinson, Artis Gilmore, Tim Duncan, Hakeem, Shaq, and Elvin Hayes did it three times, and Dwight and Kareem have done it four times. And then Rudy's done it twice as well. And that's, could very, he, he was on pace to do it again this year. And I mean, that's a very elite list to be able to do that two, three, four times because it A, requires just crazy stats, 1,000 rebounds, 175 blocks. But B, you got to stay healthy to get to those totals. And Rudy obviously had a pretty injury riddled 18 season. But other than that, he stayed pretty healthy in his career, which I think we underestimate. Um, yep, I agree. The Jazz is here at nine points better offensively, nine points better defensively when he's on the court. That's really nice to see. He impacts both sides of the ball that well. But uh, one thing I've talked about on Twitter, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, is um, how do you compare Orlando Dwight Howard to Rudy Gobert? Uh, I mean, in terms of on-court presence, I think that I would I would probably take like 2012 Dwight Howard over Rudy right now, but in it, that's just on court when when you look at everything and factor it all in, and that means Dwight Howard and his farts in the locker room. I'm good. I, I'll take Rudy all day every day because I just feel like Dwight Howard is uh, up until this year has been a net negative when it, it comes to. Uh, Team building. Yeah, I just think it's such a fascinating conversation. I've watched probably four or five Magic games in the last couple months. Um, a lot of that 2009 finals against the Lakers. Yeah. And it's just, it's made me process and question myself on what do we value on what actually is good for a team because Dwight Howard averaged four or five more points a game. But how he got those five points were just wasting possessions on post ups. Yeah. And so how do you value that? I mean, Rudy could average another three points if he took five post-ups a game, but that wouldn't help the team. And so I have written down that Rudy Gobert is a less athletic, self-aware Dwight Howard. So kind of like what you're saying off the court is that I think Rudy Gobert and John Stockton, the best quality is they know what they're good at and they know what they're bad at and they do what they're good at. Oh, and 100%. that is a very, very underrated attribute to have in today's league. That's I, not just in today's league. That's an underrated attribute to have in life. To that understand what what your positives are and to accentuate those. That's just, I mean, that helps you be a better person. Because <laughs> that's what's boosting Rudy up in my eyes. Is He's not that talented or that athletic or that this. He just knows what he's good at. He's an elite screener. He's an elite finisher at the rim. He's an elite defensive player. And he doesn't try and shoot mid-range jump shots or try and post up or do any of this too often. 
And so that's kind of what gives me that boost to put them up so high. Okay, so one question before we move on, and don't necessarily have to dive too deeply into this, but uh, Locke talks about all the time the the value of offense versus the value of defense. With what Rudy brings on the defensive end of the floor, does that make up for his lack of on-ball offensive ability? Like, what is what is more valuable when it comes down to it and when you're just looking at the raw numbers? Is it the stops that Rudy gets on the defensive end? Or yeah, is it a guy who can score 25 points a game? We have a lot of bias towards on-ball stuff. Yeah. And in reality, there's only two players that are on ball most of the time. You have the guy holding the ball and the on-ball defender. And then the other four and four guys are all off-ball. And so if a player is off-ball 80% of the time, like we should probably value that a lot more than we do. And so that's why I'm not a huge Clay Thompson fan, is defensively he isn't that great off-ball, and he's off-ball most of the time. But um, I think we talked about this when we met a couple weeks ago, but the offense has the ball in their hand and they control the ball. So that's what they do. They move the ball around. They try and get a good shot. The defense obviously doesn't have that luxury. So what do they do? They guard the rim because that's where they know the offense is trying to get. That's their constant that they can always rely on, that we always have the rim behind us. We know where the rim is at. And that's what makes Rudy Gobert so great is he's basically, from that perspective, on ball, on rim, every second of every defensive possession. Yeah. which just leads to great defensive benefits. Does that kind of answer your question? No, I, I, I think that that does answer the question. I, I mean, really, it just I think it just comes down to each individual's preference in terms of the type of basketball they like to watch. Uh, Absolutely. I probably, I'll be the first to say I probably wouldn't value Rudy as much if I watched him three times a year as opposed to watching him 82 to, times a season for sure and that's why fans have a hard time properly understanding rudy gobert compared to our front office or even other front offices yeah um go ahead i had a thought but it just left me so <laughs> don't you love that such is life such is life hey as soon as we're done recording it'll come back to you it's day 25 of quarantine i'm still trying to figure some stuff out <laughs> it's that swiss cheese quarantine brain Oh, I was going to say, I remember now. Um, I was going to say, we always like to talk about the offense is more important or defense is more important. And this is a very common sense thing to say. And when I say it, everyone will go, well, duh. But if you really stop and think about it, it's an interesting concept that if you look at the league average offensive rating and you look at the league average defensive rating, they're always exactly the same. Yeah. And so whether you can gain a three-point advantage with a good defense or a three-point advantage with a good offense, that's worth the same. And so why it might seem more offense is more important. If everybody's better at offense, then it cancels out and it's actually not more important, which is something I think we often forget. Yeah. You know, if everybody had a LeBron James, LeBron James wouldn't be that important because everyone would have one. Exactly. And I, I think that's kind of the, the crux of David Locke's, um, his points above average created. What it, What is it now? It's not pack anymore, is it? I don't know. I can't remember what, but I think that's the crux of it. Like, if everybody can do something, then you just you go back to the baseline there, and who's better than the baseline? And I, I'm a huge stats guy, and I'm not a huge fan of his whatever he's calling it these days, because all it is is this fancy true shooting percentage. 
it's just true shooting percentage compared to the rest of the league. And he's always trying to figure out why are the Nuggets so off? Because the Nuggets don't turn the ball over and they offensive rebound. That's why. So yeah. But yeah, I do. It's good for the most part. Okay. Well, last thing here, we both have our number one. Uh, sounds like we both have Carl Malone, unless the, we've got a huge upset and Carl didn't make no. your top ten. I have Carl Malone. All right, so Sorry. I've got eighty nine ninety. What Carl season did you have? Oh, I really got close to also choosing eighty nine ninety, but I couldn't stop myself to stock an Malone for nineteen ninety and be like, okay, but why didn't we do anything in the playoffs then? So I ended up going with 1997, his first MVP year and first finals year. I kept having that same question when I picked 89-90 for both of them, and, you know, it came down to it. I was just, man, that was a tough Lakers team, and so be it. I but, stopped, and I went through every playoff game, and I was trying so hard to figure out, like, if this was both of their best seasons, why did it not work? But I ended up going with 97 so tell me about 1990 then and why you chose it. Okay, so 1990, this ended up being Carl Malone's highest scoring season in his career. He averaged 31 points a game, had one and a half steals, just under three assists, 11 rebounds. And, and you think about your power forward averaging 31 and 11. I'll, I'll take that. He also had over 11 free throws per game, which is just a massive number. He, he shot 76% from the free throw line. And when you look at Carl when he first came into the league in 85 and he was shooting just over 50%. And now, so one of my notes is talk about Carl Malone's free throw percentages and how he went from 48 to 60 to 70 to 76 in his first four years. Yep, exactly. And that is shows who Carl Malone was as a player and why he became so good. That, that, I think those aren't talent or skill. It's just work ethic. It's just figuring it out. I mm-hmm. get taller players struggle a bit more because of the long arms. And that's fine. But if you can see an improvement in free throw percentage like that, you know he's working hard and figuring some stuff out. I totally agree. I think that type of improvement on the free throw percentage is what sets, not to say Carl was better than a guy like Shaq. Shaq was better, a better basketball player than Carl Malone. But if, I think if Shaq had swallowed his ego on to, you know, a different variety of free throw attempts he could have used, if he had been willing to shoot underhand, maybe that would have worked better. And I'm not saying Shaq didn't work at shooting free throws, but he wasn't willing to do everything possible to get better. And I think that's what sets some guys apart. And yeah, in four seasons to improve your free throw percentage by 38%, that's gigantic. And if Carl is is a career 60% free throw shooter, he goes from 36,000 points in his career to, what, 31, 32? I'll go look it up after and tweet it out. But, yeah, it's a big drop. Yeah. I have that in here, too. He's an eight, he led the league in free throws made eight times. Yeah. He's the career leader in free throws made as well. Yeah. I And I believe I don't have it up in front of me right now, but I want to say this this 89-90 season for Carl Malone, he ended up with, uh, I think it was three or four different career highs. Um. That is when his 61-point game against the Bucks came. Yep, his, his career-high individual scoring. career-high and 10 rebounds. His career-high, I'm sorry, not 10 rebounds, 10 turnovers. His career-high of 7 steals. Uh, I guess we can claim his career-high of 6 personal fouls if we want. <laughs> I'll um, take it. 20 free throws made was that year. 34 two-point attempts, 22 two-point throws made. 
It was the only year he made two threes in a single game, and the only year he took three threes in a single game. So yes, a lot of career highs that year. Yeah, that was. I mean, that was eighty nine ninety was really Carl Malone coming into his own. Well, like you said, the Jazz didn't end up accomplishing anything that postseason. You went with ninety seven, his first MVP year. Yeah. Tell me about why are you are you on the uh, uh, Doris well, Burke Doris Burke yeah. train right now, or <laughs> do you think he deserved the MVP? I think he deserved that MVP. Um, MVP is a weird award, though, which we could talk about, but it's a lot narrative driven, and I think it more than any other award gets voter fatigue. I don't believe in voter fatigue for Defensive Player of the Year, Sixth Man of the Year, anything like that. But MVP, I think it does. Okay. Um, so I do think he deserves it. The Jazz won 64 games that year, 64 and 18, and then they went 11 and 3 in the Western Conference playoffs before the finals. Like, that's a pretty good number. They went 304142. Pretty much walking to the finals. Houston gave him a little trouble, obviously. He was 27 points, 9.9 rebounds, and 4.5 assists. Is his career high in assists, I believe, was in that 97 year? Which just goes to show how much his game developed. Four point five is not a small number for if, a power forward, especially in that era. And if I remember um, right, I believe ninety-seven was the first year that Carl ever got a triple double. Uh, you could be correct there. I think he got the triple double in like January or something against the Clippers. So he had a ten assist game in ninety-five, ninety-six, but I'm not sure if that was a triple double. And then he had ten assists. He if you if you want something fun to do, go look up his season high assist on Basketball Reference and just watch the number grow because it goes from eight six seven to he finishes ten ten nine nine ten ten. Like his, he really developed his game throughout his entire career, and that's very valuable. And why he played till he was forty forty one years old. Um, yeah. You brought up the MVP race. He had eighty five point seven percent of possible MVP votes, which is. Pretty impressive. Only one player's ever got the full 1.0, and that was Steph Curry a couple years ago. So 85.7 is a pretty dominant MVP vote. His career accolades, two-time MVP, 15-time All-Star. I'm counting 1999 in that because um, they need to come out and announce All-Stars for the 1999 season. 23-time Player of the Week, 7-time Player of the Month, 14-time All-NBA, 11-time First Team. And something I didn't fully grasp before is uh, four-time all-defense, including three times first team. He wasn't some bad defender. Like Those were late in his career, too. He developed, again, into a really, really good defender. Carl Malone's ability to stay in front of his guy and then strip the ball was second to none. I I don't know if I'd call him a, a great defender, but... A couple things that have stood out to me. Uh, we've talked about 2K a little bit, and then the uh, jazz games that NBA TV was th- showing the other day. I In 2K, I was always surprised. I'm like, man, they definitely respected Carl Malone's rim defense because I'd never yeah. remembered that from him as a player. But then like watching the uh, uh, ni- 1990 game, was it 90 or 91 against the Spurs? But Carl Malone, I knew he was athletic, but that guy could – protect the basket i was yeah. really impressed i and i didn't I wonder, remember that from him as a player i wonder if he would be a center in today's game because he's just so big 
Oh, I think he would definitely be a center, but he, he would he would be a guy that shoots threes. He would incorporate that into his game, okay. I have no doubt. I was going to talk about that as well. So, finishing up some career stuff. He had an MVP vote 15 times in his career, which is just crazy. He had, so, he had an MVP vote more often than he made All-NBA. Five times top three, and he finished his career with 4.296 MVP award shares, which is eighth all-time. Um, wow. That's all your MVP votes throughout your whole career added up together. So, I, yeah, I have two questions I want to talk about. Um, why didn't he shoot more threes? So the NBA shortened the three-point line for a couple years in the mid-90s, right? Yeah. One of those years was 95-96, and Carl Lowe shot 16 for 40 from three that year. So, A, he put up 40 attempts, and B, he shot 40% on them. And I get that's only 40, a decently small sample size, but he was shooting a lot of mid-range jumpers, and when the three-point line shortened, his long jumpers became a few extra threes. So why would he not shoot more threes, and could he shoot more threes in today's game? You'd draw that up a little bit. And it's it's all analytics. I just, I mean, you look at those jazz teams coached by Jerry Sloan throughout the 90s into the early 2000s. They were, I mean, if they took 14 threes, that was a lot for a game. I, I remember, can't. Can't tell you exactly what game it was, but I remember going to a game and the Jazz didn't make a single three the entire game. And I only know that because they used to have this silly sound effect. They would they had the tornado siren they would play every time the yeah. Jazz hit a three. And it, it was late in the fourth quarter. I'm like, I haven't heard the tornado siren. And sure enough, I think they attempted four threes in that game. Um, we can do that these days, then it never stopped. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The t- Tornado siren would not be possible in an NBA arena because it'd drive everybody mad. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to say on that one. But oh, I, I think he he would have ended up being a three point shooter. It just 40. it just wasn't what he did. But if it's what the yeah. game called for, I think he would have. I just thought it was super interesting that he went from 16 out of 40 with the short and three-point line to the three-point line going back out two feet, and he goes 0 for 13 the next year. And just that drop of going from 16 makes to zero and 40 to 13 attempts because the three-point line went back two feet. So I just thought that was interesting. My other one I want to bring up well, is... Hold uh, Let me ask you a question before. really quick before you, yeah. you bring up this next one. So Carl Malone, from what I remember, rarely just... was acted as a catch-and-shoot guy. He was typically going to catch with his back to the basket and hit that little fall-away, or he would he would turn and put the ball onto the floor and go to the basket if it wasn't something in transition. So I guess my question is, in terms of if he played today, would his face-up game be good enough to be as a three-point shooter? Because I don't think he's going to do that fade-away that he used from 16 feet. I'm not sure. That's a really good question. Um, I think his touch was pretty pretty good. He had an arsenal of moves that he could get a shot off, and his shot got a lot softer as his career went on. And We need to figure out a time machine to mix all these players up in eras because it would be a lot of fun seeing how the games developed and seeing what players were um, going both directions. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Um, okay, you had one other people, question. What? You had Sorry, one other most, question. Yeah, so most people blame the lack of a title here in Utah on Carmelo not being clutch. 
And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, that he would choke in key moments, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I never thought that Carl Malone was somebody you could go to late in games. I, I thought that Carl Malone was a uh, you know first 40 minutes type of a guy, and you had to have John Stockton as a closer because Carl just, I mean, you, you saw it throughout his entire career. How often did he hit game winners? How often was he really clutch? Who Not that, that often. Against the Heat. Uh, which year was that one against the Heat? I don't know the one you said you were at. Oh, that was that was Stockton that hit that one. That was ninety six. Stockton hit the one in Houston, and I know Stockton hit the one against the Bulls in that crazy game. Yeah, Jordan's Bulls in the early nineties. And and when you think about Carl Malone in like clutch free throw moments, he he missed free throws. He did. He missed missed free throws late. If he was going to the line. In the last four minutes of a close game, especially the playoffs, I didn't trust Carl Malone at all. I I loved him, and I was a huge Carl Malone fan. But as, as a basketball person, I didn't trust him, even at 14 years old, when I'm watching him go to the line in a in a close game. How I am with Rudy? Because um, I was just curious. Because I was looking through some stuff. Uh, specifically, I'm obsessed with the 1998 Finals, as are most Jazz fans. And we all know the shot by Jordan, all that fun stuff. And we all know Carmelo turned it over, and people looked at that as, oh, no, what just happened? But Carmelo had 31, 11, and 7 in that game. And John Stockton had 10 and 5 and was just awful the whole second half. And so I just think it's interesting that we focus in on these small moments of where Malone came up short in the last 10 seconds when the first 47 minutes it was Malone who had showed up. And so I don't have an opinion one way or another. I've just been looking through some things and wanted another opinion. Oh, come on now. You've got an opinion on it. <laughs> no, I just, I, as I said, like, I just think it's interesting that Malone had more assists than John Stockton in the 1998 Finals Game 6. Like, that was the biggest game of their careers, and Stockton finished with 10-5, and five, and Malone finished with 31-11-7. and seven. And, um, That is Stockton's kind of interesting. second half specifically was 2-for-7 from the field, 6 points, 1 assist, 3 turnovers the second half of that game and so Stockton being the quiet personality I think sometimes has slid underneath some blame that we give out as jazz fans a lot because we don't have a title me uh, especially I blame everybody you you could be onto something there I, I do think that Stockton probably gets the uh deity treatment in Utah a little bit more than Carl Malone does so it's just been something I'm looking at and I'll continue to look at and Trying to figure out how the Jazz had Stockton and Malone for 20 years and don't have a Larry O'Brien trophy sitting downtown. Well, I'll tell you what, if we if this uh, quarantine lasts too much longer, then maybe we should just do a, a deep dive into the entire 1998 finals and just I, do each game. They're all on YouTube. Are they all on YouTube? All the 97, 98 final games all on YouTube. We might have to look into that. So, but all right, well, this was fun. Thanks for having me on and yeah. The podcast. yeah, man. McCade, thanks for thanks for finally joining us. Like we said at the beginning, we've talked about this for a while, and the day we actually sat down to figure out the, the shape of the program, everything ended, and the, the world got flipped upside down. But, no, we appreciate you coming on and being willing to at least call in, even if you can't come into the studio. It's not ideal, but... Do you have any social media or anything you want to throw out there for people yeah. to follow you on? Um, 
follow me on Twitter at McCade. That's M-C-C-A-D-E P-8. Um, give me feedback. I'd love to respectfully argue with one together. So <laughs> you can reach me there. I'm always on there. Awesome. Perfect. Well, this is your host, Brian Priest. Find me on Twitter at bpriest24, and you can find Home Court Press on any of your major podcatchers, and you can also find it online at kbear.com. Thanks for tuning in, and make sure you are practicing social distancing. Have a great day.